This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In Logan Thompson's new book, Beyond the Content, Mindfulness as a Test Prep Advantage, you can learn how to tackle the hardest parts of taking a test, the stress, anxiety, self-doubt. In this quick read, you'll learn how mindfulness can help you conquer the voices in your head, study better, and approach the test with confidence. Most test prep books, textbooks, and classes miss the mark by only focusing on strategy and content. This essential guide tackles the other half of test prep, mindfulness and your mental performance. Mindfulness is widely embraced in the business and athletic communities as a valuable technique to optimize performance. Author Logan Thompson, an expert in both test prep and mindfulness, says that it's about time the test prep community embraces it as well. In his book, Thompson explains, the other half of test prep is the world of fleeting thoughts and emotions, always flickering, always murmuring inside your head, usually going unnoticed and unremarked upon. They shape our perceptions and perspectives, and they dictate our performance on tests. The other half of test prep is happening all the time, whether we like it or not. Your mental and emotional state, your surfacing memories, your underlying beliefs are always there. The good news is that by acknowledging the other half of test prep, exploring it, and working with it, you can gain access to your full potential. Logan Thompson scored in the 99th percentile on the SAT, GRE, and GMAT. He has studied and practiced mindfulness since 2008. After earning his MBA from Vanderbilt University, Thompson lived at the Insight Meditation Society in Bari, Mass. for two and a half years, spending several months in silent mindfulness retreats. He also completed a two-year mindfulness teacher training program by Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, IBME. Thompson holds a Master of Education in Human Development and Psychology from Harvard University and is an adjunct psychology professor. He has spent the past several years teaching both mindfulness and test prep for Manhattan Prep. For more information about Logan Thompson, visit his website at www.loganjthompson.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spirituality and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel. Today, I am talking to Logan Thompson about his new book, Beyond the Content, Mindfulness as a Test Prep Advantage. Welcome to the show, Logan. Hi, thanks so much. Yeah, so this is a very fun um, application of mindfulness. And um, before we get into the book, I'm wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself 
and how you became interested in mindfulness and meditation. Sure. So I, I was introduced to mindfulness um, when I was about 21. I read a book called The Power of Now and then another book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And that was my, at the time I was struggling with some, um, I was having more anxious thoughts or, or sad thoughts than I wanted to have. And I was just looking for, just looking for help in navigating life. And these two books were the first thing that introduced me to the concept that the thoughts and emotions we have don't necessarily represent an ultimate truth or reality. For example, if I had the thought, um, I'm not good at this, or this person doesn't like me, or I'm inadequate, or something like that. Um, if I had that thought, I used to think because I had the thought that the thought was true. But mindfulness allowed me to realize that I could notice that thought, and then it allowed a little separation for me to be able to notice, oh, I'm noticing that there's a thought that says I'm inadequate. And that's very different than I'm believing I'm inadequate. It's just here's a thought that says I'm inadequate. And that separation just represented immense freedom. So over the next 10 years was kind of a convoluted story um, where I pursued business and got my MBA and uh, then worked in consulting. But I kept reading about and studying mindfulness until I finally made the official switch and did a three-month silent mindfulness retreat at Insight Meditation Society studying under Joseph Goldstein. And that, that really marked the, the deep dive into mindfulness. And that was about five years ago. So for the past five years, I've, I've been studying mindfulness, doing mindfulness retreats, but also teaching. I started teaching test prep at Manhattan Prep, and I realized that the mindfulness tools I was learning could readily be applied to anyone in a high-performance scenario. And it just so happened my students we're in the high performance scenarios of trying to perform on tests. And it just seemed like a natural fit to talk about what I call the other half of test prep, not just the content, but the mental capacity, the calm, the, the focus that also accompanies um, performance on tests. So I started integrating it into the classroom at Manhattan Prep. And um, over the past year where I was getting my when I was getting my master's in human development and psychology at Harvard, I uh, completed this book on mindfulness and test prep. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great application. Do you want to say something about yourself too? Because I'll put a little plug in for you. You have scored in the 99th percentile on the SAT, the GRE, and the GMAT. So did you use some of this along the way or like what's the connection for you personally? Yeah, sure. So there, there are two things uh, uh, about the, the high scoring and people and people ask me about that. I think I did use, or I know I did use some of these techniques to get the higher score. Um, but there's also, there's also another component and that's the content. I really did have to study the content a lot so this book isn't just a, a pathway on its own to a higher score. It really needs to have work in tandem with the content. And some of the ways that it would, that I used this, I, I mean, I'll tell you the exact, an exact situation. 
I took the official GMAT just to keep practicing and kind of do it for fun. I'm kind of a geek when it comes to that. I took the official GMAT again two months ago. And during one, after after a couple questions, um, my I felt kind of overwhelmed. And there was this particular part of the question that had me do, I think it was something like 22 minus 6. And my mind just froze. And I couldn't do 22 minus 6. So there's there was the immediate frustration of not being able to do 22 minus 6. It took me probably 15 seconds to do it. But it's the the five seconds after that that this the concepts of this book really helped me because during those five seconds after that, my mind was flooded with loud thoughts saying, you're pathetic. How could you not know 22 minus 6? You're going to be embarrassed in front of your students. Um, just kept going, kept going. And if I hadn't used some of the tools in this book, then I wouldn't have been able to recognize those thoughts and just kind of put them to the side and say, okay, these thoughts are there from habitual criticism from the past or whatever I want, whatever story I want to give it. But just notice those thoughts as something that aren't necessarily true. And then five seconds later, I'm able to focus on the next problem. Whereas if I hadn't noticed those thoughts, I would have immediately and implicitly believed them, which is what happens with most of us in our thoughts. We believe the message of them. And then I would be acting from a place of inadequacy. I would and it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy, which it does when we think we're not capable of something. And that could have lasted the whole test. So this book is just really ways to keep us on the rails of our full capability. So that's so interesting because um, as I heard you talking about being flooded with that, with all those thoughts, um, as a psychologist providing therapy to people, I'll often tell, tell someone you know, we need to work on your on getting you a good set of brakes. And, I, you know, I'll mm-hmm. say like, you have to learn how to put the brakes on that kind of thoughts. So mm. knowing that I, I often refer to that, you'll understand why I, I absolutely love your concept of passengers. And so if we turn to the book now, you maybe could start us out by explaining your the concept that you have come up with to sort of teach this material to people. With sure, sure. I think I can actually pivot off of your breaks, your breaks analogy. Could you, could you just give a sentence or two about what you mean by breaks? And I I really think it'll be parallel to the book. Yes. I just will bring to someone's attention how quickly they're buying into um, a negative, negative concept. So they might be in therapy with me telling me, well, then this happened and I started to worry about that. And then this, and I'll say to them, you know, at any point in time, if you had a good set of brakes, you'd be able to sort of recognize that you're speeding along and you really just need to slow down. Got it. Okay. Yeah. The The analogy I use in this book um, is just another way of looking at the same situation when there are voices and emotions that kind of get the unhelpful voices and emotions that start to take place. And rather than the analogy of putting on the brakes... I use the analogy of passengers and a driver. So um, the the thing or the momentum that you say put the brakes on, I call that the the voices of passengers. And passengers I just use to call uh, various themes of thoughts and emotions, unhelpful thoughts and emotions that arise in most of us. Now, there are, there are general categories that arise in all of us, but I think 
uh, everyone has to kind of search for their own unique patterns. So for example, one common passenger would be um, what I call in the book, compare bear. And it's given a cute name just so it's not just, just so it doesn't sound like an adversarial thing within us. But compare bear would be anytime there's this theme of comparing ourselves to other people to make ourselves feel worse. And when we notice that, you might say, let's put the brakes on that. And in the framework of the book, it's uh, can we recognize that as a, as a passenger who is metaphorically taking the wheel? And then uh, there are various tools to dialogue with and understand that passenger and then have the driver retake the wheel. The driver being that part of us that is generally uh, conscientious, wise, compassionate, focused, calm, the part of us that comes alive, usually when we feel safe and are not too absorbed with ourselves. So you can think of times when you, if you're asking yourself, like, when is my driver come alive? It usually happens when two, two things occur. One, when we feel safe and protected. And two, when we're connected with something other than or bigger than us. For example, if an animal is in need or if we're connected to a bigger cause. And those are the times that the driver comes alive. So um, the driver and passenger metaphor is something that I find helpful for students to add, have a narrative around. Because otherwise, it's just one singular person. And people get confused about, well they think I'm going to fail and there's only one me. So it must be true rather than taking a lens of, you know what, there are different voices and different types of um, habits within me that I can start to parse out. I, I love that idea. And um, I'm wondering if you would just talk maybe about a couple of the other common passages. Yeah. You've, you've given them really good names. <laughs> sure. So one that I find very common is leapfrog. <laughs> and leapfrog happens a lot on standardized tests and standardized test prep. So leapfrog represents the type the the theme of thoughts and emotions that occurs when something goes something goes a little bit wrong and then the mind jumps to conclusions and and for example, that 22 minus 6 problem that I had on the test a few months ago, Leapfrog, in my, in my own experience, came, came alive and said, well, if you can't do this 22 minus 6 on this problem, you're certainly going to miss the next problem, then the next problem, and then you know what? You're not going to do well on the test. Then you know what? Um, your students aren't going to respect you. Then you're going to lose your job. Like All these thoughts will just slowly surface beneath uh, well, beneath the surface. And it starts to make you feel like hypervigilant and on edge and feel jittery and tight. And there are two, this is where kind of, this is where mindfulness practice comes in without mindfulness practice. We're not able to notice when those thoughts come alive because just, they just streamline within our own narrative about ourselves. So it's really important to practice mindfulness enough to notice them. And then um, we can talk about now or maybe in a bit about different ways to relate to those passengers so that they'll, I guess, sub be, be a little more subdued. Um, it's crucial to see the good intentions underneath the passengers 
rather than start to just have an adversarial fight with them. Because if we have a fight with the passengers, we're just adding energy to fighting ourselves, and that doesn't get us anywhere. For example, if I think the jumping to conclusions thought process that I'm having during the test is a bad part of me that I need to get rid of and go to therapy to uh, never have again, then I'm just going to be fighting with myself. And it's probably going to embolden those thoughts. However, if I can see that those thoughts are actually coming from a place that's trying to protect me from future failure, then I can lessen my defenses against those thoughts and kind of do a, a little bit of a, hey, thanks for the intent, but don't need to, I don't need to go thinking more down that path. And that kind of diffuses the situation and then allows the quote unquote driver to come back in the driver's seat and pursue whatever goals necessary. Yes, this is making me associate to the part in the book where you talk about acceptance and and once you accept something, it can actually make an unpleasant experience more tolerable. Yeah. Yeah, there's a I think the best analogy for this for me is there's there's a faux equation that's tossed around in spiritual circles that says uh, suffering equals pain times resistance. So it's not, of course, that that simple, but that concept really resonates. And I can the best example I can think of is a pain in and imagine you have a pain in your back, like your upper back muscle, and it just feels. Um, if it all of a sudden seizes up and you feel a lot of pressure and burning and you don't know why that's likely going to be unpleasant and you're going to be suffering from it. However, imagine that exact same pain, but now change the scenario in which you're in a high end spa getting a deep tissue massage. And that same pain is coming from someone pushing on it. There's no difference in your physical sensations, but in one, cir- in one circumstance, you're suffering and upset and distracted, and in the other, you're relaxed and bliss. And that's simply because of the degree of acceptance of what's happening. And the same thing can happen on an emotional level. I definitely can relate to that because if I am not feeling well, it's one thing to not be feeling well, but if I'm not feeling well, I start to get really anxious and it escalates because I think I'm going to have to cancel all my appointments and this isn't going to, you know, this is going to make me look bad. And if I can just relax and stay with, you don't feel well, I I don't have to suffer, suffer so much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So I'm also wondering about how this, you, you bring up, what was it called? Like the window of tolerance and how to kind of keep track of that and how, you know, fight or flight, how that interferes with our ability to sort of stay calm and recognize what's happening in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how does that factor in? Cause that's a, that's a complicated, I think, I think, you know, you do a good job of explaining that if you practice you know, these, if you develop mindfulness skills and practice meditation, you can sort of notice when that's happening. But do you want to talk a little bit about that sort of, I 
I consider it sort of being flooded. Yeah, I think there's 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 a sweet spot of there's a sweet spot of energy that we that we need to to be focused. So people say, "Is stress bad?" And not necessarily. Um, stress isn't stress isn't necessarily bad because it just it can kind of heighten our energy and focus. However, there's a tipping point when we get overwhelmed, and that's when this tipping point starts to happen when we feel threatened. And when we feel threatened, our our evolutionary developments of either fight, flight, or freeze start to take over. And then our whole physiological system starts to say, hey, wait a second, you know, this stress on focusing on this test actually isn't the thing. This Our system says, I actually feel threatened for my life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send, I'm going to flood the body with cortisol and send uh, resources to different parts of my body that are responsible for keeping me alive, not for thinking spaciously and relaxed and creatively. And when that happens, our body's doing the exact right thing, given the situation is trying to keep us alive, but it's not meeting our goal of performing better on a test. Mm-hmm. So the the first thing, as with all of this, the first thing starts with mindfulness and starting to be able to recognize the initial signs of being overwhelmed. And that usually starts in the body. And many of us are a bit dissociated from our body and don't, we won't really catch those initial feelings of um, butterflies in the stomach or sweaty palms or fast heart rate. And we don't catch it until it's 10 minutes too late and we're already in a, in a semi panic. Mm-hmm. So if we back up, and start to catch it at the immediate arising of those situations, we can usually connect it with some thoughts. And a thought, for example, leapfrog, for example, that that passenger, that can send anyone into fight or flight. Because if you, well, I had a student who thought that if she missed this problem on a practice test, she wouldn't do on the actual test, so she wouldn't get into school, so she wouldn't meet her husband, so she wouldn't have kids, so she wouldn't be happy. And that sounds, it sounds extreme, but it happens with everyone on a, on a subtle level. We just kind of jump to conclusions. So of course her body is going to react in a way that's um, extreme and life-saving saving because her mind has told her body, my entire livelihood is threatened right now. Mm-hmm. So what mindfulness can do is help us realize the initial signs of either the thought or the physio- physiology of going to of taking basically taking this situation right now and making it extreme and mindfulness in other words paying attention to the present moment can help bring us back and say you know what those are just thoughts all that's happening right now is there's a piece of paper in front of me or a computer in front of me Mm -hmm. and that can start to lessen the flood that that takes over our bodies yeah that's 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 complicated and that's hard because I think that's the sort of panacea everyone's looking for from meditation is that somehow you could get to a place where you could avoid ever having to feel that way. Yeah, and I think that's that's really important to say. I'm glad you bring it up because when I'll say when I'll say say something like I just said a minute ago, people will come to the conclusion that 
if they ever feel overwhelmed, then they're doing it wrong or they're not practiced enough or if they don't feel calm, they're not meditating correctly. Or meditation's not working for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it just breeds discouragement and another, another thing for them to fail at. So the best, I mean, I still get overwhelmed and the best way for me to think about mindfulness is just a tool to help so you think and think of it in two ways. In one spiritual tradition, the uh, experiences that get us overwhelmed are sometimes talked about as um, two arrows. So the first arrow we can rarely do are two darts. Um, imagine kind of two little tiny darts being thrown and, and stinging us. If the first one we can rarely do something about, but um, it's very often that in our addressing of the first dart. We kind of throw a second dart at ourselves. So what that looks like is, yes, we may get stressed and overwhelmed without being able to do anything about it. That said, it's what we do from that point that we do have some uh, do have some control over. So I just think of mindfulness not as a tool to keep us from ever being overwhelmed, but as a tool to help mitigate and diffuse the damage when we do get overwhelmed, not to add to it. And one if we look at a category of things that would diffuse it and then a category of things that would add to it, I'll give you a few examples. In the category of diffusing it, it would be accepting what's happening, um, like accepting the current state without judging it. It would be uh, reaching out to an ally for perspective. And that ally can be internal. Just ask yourself for perspective. Okay, what's really going on here or external? It can be calling your calling upon your driver and there's a chapter in here called driver's Hmm. ed it can be just using mindfulness to to notice the various sensations of what are happening in this moment all of those things are not going to add to the to the overall stress response but in the other category of things that add to it that happens to be our typical way of working with these things and the first way to add to it is not to notice it in the first place because if we don't notice the stress response and the stories that are going along with it they just keep getting a momentum and then we find ourselves 30 minutes later in some fantasy about a terrible situation just because we didn't catch the thoughts at the beginning so the first way to add to the stress is not to notice it in the first place that's one of the reasons mindfulness is so important and the second and most common reason is to fight with it or ourselves. And that's when we have a stress response and then we use some justification to blame ourselves for having it. So that would be the second dart in the metaphor. If we blame ourselves for having it, that just gives us another reason to freak out about being inadequate. Oh no, I'm freaking out because I'm stressed. And then, oh no, I'm a terrible pathetic person for getting this stressed out and we just that just compounds the situation so i don't see mindfulness as a preventative of natural fluctuations of human emotions i just see mindfulness and some frameworks like either putting on the brakes or drivers and passengers as a way to help navigate and keep us a little more on the rails uh, rather than getting us further off course but i also am just really tempted to ask like you, you've studied this for a long time too. So everything I say, of course, this isn't an exact science. So I, I wonder your thoughts on it too. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, I, I actually, as I, I'm thinking about what you're talking about, it might help to put the concepts you just mentioned um, into the context of a couple more of the passengers that you described, because when you refer to like the leapfrog, that and I think that's easy to relate to. I, I still do that too. And, you know, I meditate and I've been reading about and studying this stuff for a long time. And, you know, I, I still, all these passengers show up for me, um, the later gator and discount and imp- imp- imposter pony. That, I mean, that's a big one, <laughs> not enough. Um, so maybe, maybe you, before you say more about how this all works, you could just say a little bit more about those common passengers. Yeah. And we could even, uh, I, I could kind of walk through the activity and emotional signs and physical oh, that'd signs. that'd be great. Uh, we, could, we could do later gator. That's a, a popular one, definitely for me. So kind of straight from the book, later gator is this constellation of thoughts and emotions that uh, tells you to procrastinate. It'll say things like, you can wait till later or you deserve a break or uh, other things are more important for you to do right now. And it'll, you just use a number of justifications to tell you not to do something. And I wrote, I think I wrote on my Instagram the, the other day or a few weeks ago, my room has never been cleaner um, than when I'm procrastinating. Right. Now's a good time to clean my room. I don't want to have to make that phone call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I'm and when I was writing this book, so many random things got done. <laughs> uh, like bills got paid, and I called people I hadn't called in years because if I had to finish a chapter, my mind later Gator would come alive and say, "Oh, you know what? You really need to, you really need to iron those pants that you <laughs> right. never wear, or just something." And so that's the message that later Gator usually has. And the emotional signs, it's usually feelings of anxiety or fear because the underlying tasks don't go away just because I'm doing something else doesn't mean just because I'm ironing the pants doesn't mean the chapter that I need to finish has gone away so it's really just this um, buzzing anxiety and fear and you can feel tense and uneasy but how to work with it and how I worked with it. It was a very meta experience because I'm writing that I was writing this chapter and experiencing later Gator. So it is to find the good intention underneath and my good intention underneath those thoughts that I found was they were trying to prevent me from experiencing whatever negative emotions arise when I finally, when I finally face the task that needed to be completed. For example, face uh being faced with the daunting task of finishing a chapter on a deadline in a book that I didn't know how to write I wasn't an author was really scary so procrastinator came up and said hey go do a simple task and if i look at it through that lens procrastination's not evil it's just something that wanted to protect me from facing something 
potentially overwhelming. So the way to respond to later Gator in that scenario was to thank it either with words or just a feeling for wanting to keep me away from a potentially terrible experience of being faced with uh, faced with a daunting task. And then that's when uh, you can actually dialogue a little bit with and reason with the passenger. So one of the ways to counter and dialogue with later Gator, one of the things I said was, well, I know you want to keep me from doing this task to protect me. Thanks, but I actually need to face that negative experience um, because I can handle it. And avoidance hasn't really helped me in the past. So it's it's almost like having a relationship and negotiating with someone else. And negotiating with someone else doesn't really work if you either ignore them or just fight with them. Right. So it's interesting how often what you're talking about is ourselves turning on ourselves. Like a lot of what you're talking about is these thoughts that come up are we're beating ourselves up or we're predicting doom and gloom for ourselves. And, you know, I think you, you talk in the book too about the needs for self-compassion and thinking about you wouldn't talk to a friend that way, but what you're actually explaining in this later gator situation is that you could get to a point where you could be a little bit more compassionate, you know, with yourself and with, with the, like the, like you said, the underlying protective motivation um, for those, for those thoughts, but. You know. Sure. Compassion. So for people who are interested, Kristen Neff does a lot of research on, on compassion and very close to that is kind of the flip side of that. It's going to be uh, shame is when it's needed the most. And Brene Brown does a lot of research on that. If people want to look them up, but compassion, self-compassion has been the hardest thing for me and continues to be. Um, I have a, an immediate aversive reaction uh, when I hear about self-compassion. Perhaps this is, perhaps it's societal um, from being raised and being raised as a quote unquote guy in the South and how I'm supposed to feel. And I, I carry some of those judgments about self-compassion with me. And I really think it's important for people who have a similar kind of nauseating reaction, initial nauseating reaction to something like self-compassion, um, <laughs> ironically, to be compassionate about that reaction and understand that, okay, I'm not wrong because I have a, because I have a negative reaction towards self-compassion. Let me kind of just meet myself where I am and understand that I might have a negative reaction to it. And just whatever self-compassion definition is for you is fine. For example, some people, um, for example, Tara Brock is a, is a, one of my mindfulness teachers. And one of the things she does is places a hand on her heart and talks to herself and says, it's okay, sweetheart. I love you. And she uses that very, um, the soft approach to self-compassion. Another teacher that I had, um, I asked him, what's your approach to self-compassion? And his version was telling himself, you know, I guess I'm doing the best I can. So they can look very, very different, but they're both showing understanding and empathy to where one is. So um, for I'm, I know I'm projecting here, but for people who 
may not gravitate towards self-compassion, it doesn't have to mean what you your image of it already is. It can be any brand that just brings you a little bit of ease and makes you feel a little bit of less badness. <laughs> well, one of the things that I think is kind of really unique about your book is that you're actually taking something like mindfulness and with the concepts of self-compassion and acceptance. And you're, the whole point of your book is to help people do better, you know, to, to reach their full potential on a test. And so it's a really, I, I really, that's one of the reasons why I like it and have suggested it to people already who aren't even taking a test because who doesn't want to do better? Who doesn't want to score higher or write a better paper or write a better report or do a better presentation at work? And all of these concepts in here, they're about improving your performance. And I think a lot of times we feel like people are afraid of getting sort of soft and acceptance means you're just going to become almost complacent. Sure. And, and another another lens to, to look at this through is that of capability building of it's it's a it's a very optimistic model, assuming that most people, uh, or all people, have a capability that's bigger than what they're reaching now, and that the answer to reaching that capability is not necessarily uh, having someone else do something for you or admitting that you're not capable and your your parameters are smaller than other people's. It's saying you know it's assuming that there are internal roadblocks to all of us, and that addressing and sometimes removing those can help us reach our full capability. And I think it's, while it is geared towards test prep, the most common feedback I get on this book is why did you just write it about test prep? Like, why isn't it just called beyond the content of life or something? Um, So it, it can be applied across anything. It just so happens that I'm a test prep teacher. So that's, that's the mental, that's the high performance that's right in front of me that my students are doing. Um, but it's all just capability building in any scenario. Right, right. So how do you bring this up in the test prep um, classroom? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fir- the, we're really lucky, or I'm really lucky. Um, at the same time, that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for the test prep landscape at large, I'm really lucky because the bar is so low that even mentioning this is helpful and a game changer. And what I mean by that is one of the first things I'll ask my students in class one, uh, and I, this now I'm talking about GMAT students, in class one is what are some, what are some thoughts that uh, might hinder you from might hinder you hinder you from good performance from great performance and just that one thought will start a conversation that people aren't used to having with themselves or with other people so all of a sudden these thoughts that translate into passengers are surfaced in the class and just from doing that these themes of thoughts and emotions passengers and drivers become part of the test prep process and the conversation so that when a person misses a problem because they don't recognize linear equations or something. Um, it's gonna. It's part of the conversation 
where we can say, where I can say, okay, did you miss that because of a lack of content knowledge? Or are we talking about other half of test prep here? And then that opens up the conversation of, well, actually, yeah, you know what, my mind was distracted, or I was actually freaking out about what's going to happen next. And that allows the that allows the teacher and the student to address what's actually happening in the moment rather than just treating every single missed problem, every single mishap on test prep as a content problem. If you, if you're a teacher, it's, it's like that saying, if you have a hammer, if you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail. Well, if, if I'm a teacher and all I see is content and a student and they're their own teacher and all they see is content, they keep hitting everything with the content hammer, even if they've memorized the content. So it opens up the possibility to address other things. Yeah. It's when I work with parents that have challenging children, one of the things that comes up all the time is they'll, they'll say to themselves, I, I know he or she understands. I know they know how to behave better. So it makes me so angry. And, and just what you said, what you were just saying now reminds me, it's like, okay, then maybe it's not about whether they know better or not. Maybe there's something else getting in the way. Right. And it, it's, it's ironic because it's problem solving 101, you know, and it's, and we're, we're teaching problems. And if it's like, if one thing's going smoothly, then there's gotta be something else uh, that's the culprit. So it's, it's at the same time, really nuanced and exciting and um, tricky to talk about this other half of con other half of the content, or excuse me, other half of the test. But at the same time, it's a little mind blowing how this isn't, you know, at least a significant proportion proportion of all teaching everywhere. And it's starting to be social emotional learning is starting to um, be included, be involved in more schools. But the idea that content is the only thing at play, I think is going to be a thing of the past pretty, pretty quickly because too many people have had the experience of doing poorly on a test when they knew all the content on it. So if you get a D on a test when your content knowledge is at a B level, there's something else right. happening. But that's, I think that's how the, there's the stigma to softness or somehow it is comes up here because it's really very practical. And, and it, like, again, your, your book makes it very practical. And yet, there's this fear around, um, you know, all this, all this stuff is going to make somebody um, soft and passive and like, I don't know, I, I think of like that whole be happy, no worries, you know, and that's not the case. It's about managing, uh-huh. managing the, the worry. Yeah. And I think this if to the parents or teachers listening here, I think a lot of that is um, going to be incumbent upon us to mitigate our own judgments and misperceptions about uh, not being soft because that easily gets passed on to the students. And what I've found is that uh, if like, if we have a bias against it, it gets passed on to the students. What I've found is that if I talk about the passengers, the thoughts and emotions just as matter of factly and and with just as much importance and without many qualifications, if I talk about all of it with just as much importance as knowing your mm-hmm. exponent rules, the students the students listen and there's very little pushback. So it's been a big lesson to me 
um, not necessarily to project all of my associations and biases about about these these concepts onto other people who may or may not have them. Right. That's actually a, a nice intro to this idea about uh, that again you bring up in the book. You mentioned Carol Dweck and her growth mindset and. So I think what you're saying now is that we have to find a way, all of us, to believe in the the possibility that we could change the way we handle our passengers and then maybe how we interact with, with, with children or with anyone else that we're trying to influence. Yeah, it takes uh, – so this growth mindset principle, um, in short, is, acknowledges that – um, intelligence and um, workings of the mind are pliable and plastic and can and can change and grow rather than we're we're all assigned a fixed a fixed ceiling usually most of us think it's lower than it probably is uh, a fixed ceiling to our intelligence and if we adopt this mindset of potential growth and plasticity then greater capability is is reached so there's two ways to think about this for me and one is having some faith that we can learn more than uh, than we can learn more than we think we can Uh, having some faith that i'll be able to perform uh, better than i think i can and that one takes a little bit of a, a vulnerability a faith and a faith in ourselves that may be a little painful to have because people get scared of being proven wrong the other way to look at it is my favorite way to look at it as a bit of a cynic myself, which is not necessarily having a faith that um, I can my my ceiling is unlimited, but just acknowledging the absolute fact that we know that there's no uh, that we know that improvement is possible. So we have two two options. It's either okay, acknowledge that there's a question mark to the ceiling of my growth, or subscribe to belief that there's a limited ceiling and opting for the question mark doesn't mean having faith that I can get a perfect score. It just means the alternative to believing, to believing that there's a fairly low ceiling to my intelligence. So asking a student to uh, separate themselves from believing that there's this mediocre ceiling is a little bit less of an ask uh, than asking them to believe that it's, that it's unlimited. So I think just removing from the fixedness of it in itself unlocks a lot of potential. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. So are you currently still teaching um, students? Yeah. So I do, I do two things. I teach um, right now, mainly GRE and GMAT through Manhattan prep. And I'll do some, some, mental performance uh, teaching in those classes as well, but also separately um, do one-on-one mindfulness and mental performance coaching, not content related. So we'll, we'll talk about how to do it on the test, but in those sessions, I don't teach about, I don't teach exponents. I just teach the mental approach side of things. And that's, that's kind of a solo private practice. And I'll do that with students one-on-one or in speaking to schools or executives or so forth. Because as you said, this isn't just about test prep. This happens in businesses and 
organizations as well. I love that you just said mental performance. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the ways Mm -hmm. to kind of help reduce any sort of uh, stigma or negative associations with mindfulness and meditation. It's actually like similar to physical conditioning, right? Like mental performance, like, you know, you can strengthen your mental capacity. Yeah. And I think I use the analogy of sports in the book. It's, it's akin to stretching and going to the weight room. If you're going to play a sport, it'd be, it'd be absurd not to. So similarly, if we're asking our minds to do, uh, to do all these tasks, it, it's kind of absurd not to train the mind right. itself. Excellent. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for giving us so much <laughs> of your time today and talking us through the book and these concepts. Um, before I let you go, I'm wondering if you could tell us if there's anything in particular you're working on now or anything else that um, might be coming in the future. What other kind of interests you might have down the road? Yeah. So right now, um, I'm talking about the book to various audiences and then getting, getting a gauge of what kind of what the public wants and needs. Uh, the next book may, I have a feeling it'll be something around business. So rather than beyond the content, something or something like beyond the boardroom or something like that about executive performance. Um, and I'd draw upon my MBA and business background for that because this is applicable across verticals. Um, right now I'm focusing on, yeah, talking about the book and then doing training sessions and, um, leadership workshops in schools and for education teachers and, um, sometimes for students as well. And I think if, I guess this would be the time to plug, but if people want to learn more about that, they can just go to my website at loganjthompson.com. And the book is available at uh, Amazon.com and did you say Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really, I yeah, do, I really on, recommend on it. The other thing that's really nice about it is it's um, it's it's very manageable. You know, you put a lot of content, mm-hmm. pack a lot of content into a a small paperback. Which sometimes I think you look at those the mindfulness meditation books and they're very daunting. They're you know two inches thick and it's overwhelming. This is a really nice way to get an introduction into the really key, key aspects of, um, of how mindfulness can be effective for people. So appreciate you, you writing this and pushing past, uh, you're getting your later gator out of the way. <laughs> and I really enjoyed talking with you today. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.